And welcome to this session on Taliban governance, order and justice under Afghanistan's new power holders. My name is Anders Strand. I'm a senior researcher with the Christian Mikkelsen's Institute, and I am having the honor of moderating this session. Some of you have heard it before, but uh, this event is also streamed, so I just for repeat for, for, for the order that this Afghanistan week aimed to bring together politicians, journalists, academics and activists from Afghanistan, Norway and beyond to address key issues and to stimulate debate and understanding about Afghanistan. The first week we organized was in 2014 and we have then run these kind of meetings every second year. This year is a bit special because of the changes that have taken place in Afghanistan over the last year. The event is hosted by four organizations. It's the Norwegian Afghanistan Committee, the Peace Research Institute Oslo, the Nansen Center for Peace and Dialogue, and Christian Mikkelsen's Institute. And we have been honored with funding from NORAD, Fritur, and the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies. Um, there are, we have had a lot of good debates, and I hope we can pick up on some of them for the discussions today. But there are also more events coming later today, including a book launch. So I hope that many of you will stay with us here today. And also take the opportunity, if you've missed some of the previous events, to look at those being streamed on internet. So um, <clears throat> let me start by also introducing today's panel with four, I would say, eminent experts on the team we are going to discuss today, but with expertise on different angles to this, which I hope will enrich the debate. We'll start off with their presentations. I hope they have a good internal discussion. And then, of course, there will be possibilities for questions from the audience. Uh, let me start by introducing Shagul Rasei, human and women rights activist who was a member of the Wolese Yirga, lower host of the African National Legislature, <coughs> representing Ghazni province. She served as member and as deputy head of the Commission of Women Affairs, Civil Society and Human Rights, and for a year as chairwoman of the Central Audit and Law Enforcement Commission. And until the fall of the government, a member of the International Relations Committee and the House of Representatives. She is now living in Norway. Coming from Afghanistan is Masur Khawkhel, director and co-founder of the Liaison Office, established in 2003 in Kabul, one of Afghanistan's foremost research, peacebuilding and livelihood NGOs. TLO works with customary and state institutions to promote good governance, access to justice, livelihood improvement and civil society across Afghanistan. For those of us who have read a lot on the peace and conflict resolution literature, on Afghanistan, Masoud's name has come up very frequently. Uh, coming all the way from the US, <clears throat> Andrew Watkins is a senior expert on Afghanistan for the US Institute of Peace and has worked in and on Afghanistan in a number of roles. Previously senior analyst on Afghanistan for the International Crisis Group, an analyst of insurgent groups for the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan, and he also studied the Taliban as an independent researcher. He has also traveled extensively in Afghanistan. Last but not least, Torin Wimpelmann, senior researcher at the Christian Mikkelsen's Institute, where she currently is the co-director of the research project of New Afghan Men, which explored the changing notion of marriage and masculinity in Afghanistan. But she's also the author, and I would strongly recommend you to, to read the book. It should have been here today, too, I think. <laughs> the Pitfall of Protection, Gender, Violence, and Power in Afghanistan. 
I thought I'll start with a bit longer introduction that we had on, on some of the previous session. The reason is that I'm in the middle of a research project now funded by EU that, among other things, look at Taliban governance, trying to trace some of the changes that has taken place over the last year. And the question starting with is, how do Taliban govern? Um, <clears throat> after taking power in August 2021, they actually merged what was an already well-established shadow administration with governors, shadow ministers, more or less also cabinet, or a kind of cabinet that actually had most of the function of what was a state. Ashley Jackson has documented this quite well in some of her research. So it was really a government in waiting. It was not just something that popped up and took over Kabul on the 15th. Um, but what they did was somehow then to go in and take over the existing administration and ministries, except for the Ministry of Women Affairs, which they abandoned, and also the, the Human Rights Commission. Otherwise, most ministries continued most continued with the same administration, except on top were placed male, mostly Pashtun officials, most of them with a religious education. Um, the same thing happened with the justice um, sector, where I'm just going to quote um, research that was done by Ibrahim Rahim found that court structure and positions were not abundant, but a new set of Taliban with training in Hanafi school of Islamic jurisdiction replaced top position previously held by judges trained in modern legal education and Afghan state legislation. It was an Islamification of both governance and of the judicial sector. Now, I think it's also important to mention that while we say that this looked more the same like the first Emirate, there is one important difference. Uh, it's that this time, local province governors and administrators were recruited locally. Uh, last time, they were all put in from outside of the province, and they were more or less on rotation to avoid them holding too much influence at the time. This time, they've gone opposite to that, they have located locally. What we found with the research, at least searching on names and probability, is that seven, eight of these are not Pashtuns, but are from the different other ethnic groups. So even if they don't have representation very much at the ministry level, there are a few, there is more representation from different groups locally. There is more of a cabinet. But I think the, 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 the elephant in, in the room in, in the Taliban administration is the Emir. It's not the elephant, it's a big, big ghost sitting in Kandahar. And even if decisions are made in the cabinet, the Emir in his close circle, I would say, were the conservative advisors who, according to an old friend, said that have hardly traveled beyond Kandahar, are then the one who make decrees and in the end can overrule or avoid making decisions. I think girls' education from 7th to 12th grade is a classic example, where there, I would say there was probably a, 
at least 50% of those who are ministers or interim ministers, they are not finally appointed, are in favor of girls' education. The Emir was not. So this is, says something about the internal struggle within the Taliban as well. Uh, what is important to recognize also that they have abandoned the parliament, as Shagul is an example of. There's no longer a parliament. They seem neither to be very inclined <clears throat> to make use of the Loyadirga that both the Karzai and Ghani governments made frequently use of, at least for decision making. I think what is the case that they can be consulted as they did with the religious authorities, but they don't want them to impose decisions upon them. We still see that they are making more actively use of local traditional structures in the villages to handle conflicts and allowing that somehow the traditional system to go on. It was also touched upon yesterday, the issue of a constitution. What we know from discussions in, between the, the Republic and Taliban in Doha, did Taliban suggest that they should discuss the 1964 constitution as a starting point for a new constitution. That was rejected by the Republic at that time. So at the moment, it's to me, and we might <coughs> touch upon that, there is a discussion, should they still be based on the 94, the King's constitution, to use that term, or should it be written a completely new constitution? So all of these discussions are somehow very unclear. And I will end just my a bit longer introduction by quoting again <coughs> Rahim, who describes the Islamic Emirate to be a highly underspecified and under-theorized political system. The lack of interest in theorizing and defining the Emirate is a function of Taliban's history. Since its inception, the Taliban has remained primarily focused on warfare. Internally, the distribution of power within the group has always been a delicate balancing act that is proving difficult to institutionalize. So there we are with the state coming out of 20 years of war, who are taking over an administration that's in place with a lot of the same bureaucracy, same people in those positions, who then is having Islam as its guiding principle and is then trying to figure out how to govern. And when should interim government end and when should, is there still room for more inclusion and change of their very restrictive policies is the question that I hope our co-panelists will help us with untangling today. Uh, I wonder if I first could go to, to you, Masood, because um, you are the one who have at the moment traveled most inside Afghanistan and, and met both with uh, the Taliban or what was referred to by the or foreign minister yesterday as de facto authorities. How, how do you see the governance structure? Is it evolving? Is it fixed? Is there a difference between how it's been exercised in Kabul and, and in the provinces? Do we see a way of willingness to engage on issue and to somehow move forwards on some of the demands, not least made by the Afghan population? Where is your observation on this today? Thank you, Arne, um, and good morning, uh, everyone. 
so it's a, uh, it's a, you know, when you sit on different panels and you talk from justice to, I don't know, human rights issues to, you know, everything else in between and region. So, I, you know, you're all over the place somehow. But uh, I think um, there are two things how I would like to describe to, to your question is uh, we have the pre-August 15, or as you mentioned, to um, uh, government in waiting. Um, I recall that um, in the last year of the Republic, uh, there was something called the NGO Commission, or you know, where NGOs working in the provinces would register themselves or register their programs and and things of that sort. Especially if you're working on rural development, and this included also state-run programs as well as those um, implemented by NGOs. Uh, you would hear cases of uh, directorates of education in provinces where the, there will be the sort of the government in waiting or the shadow uh, structure uh, director of education and the republic director of education trying to work with each other on, um, on some of these resources or salaries and so on. Um, or school monitoring in some cases. So there was always, um, I think, informally uh, over the years as security deteriorated and uh, state uh, sort of outreach shrunk, uh, to district and provincial centers, sort of um, un unwritten MOU sort of emerged between these two uh, structures, which was um, different from province to province or from you know district to district. In some in some places it didn't exist, but in other places it did exist. So I think that was one of the um, uh, and that not only included the administrative structure, but I think also included the military structure, um, because on one side you had um, commissions and so on, which would regularly visit or monitor their own fighters or look at. Even complaints on some of the issues. There was some sort of a, a check and balance mechanism which was created, which will come from the sort of the leadership council uh, to check on different provinces or if there's disputes emerged. Um, so that kind of uh, is is was sort of the status quo for many years um, till August 15. Uh, and, and post that, I think what, what, what you can briefly or simply try to describe that is how that government in waiting or that uh, shadow structure sort of took over a much more complex and so many various line ministry, uh, not I would say new ministries to that much, but many new directorates, uh, many new functions of the state uh, and some linked to democracy like the human rights uh, election commission and so on. So there were all these kind of structures that had to be uh, meddled with or handled or to be decided with. So um, on one side, the first thing was to you know, establish district governors, provincial governors and some sort of a, uh, to get the affairs of the state running. Uh, because people uh, in any society have, you know, have needs documentation or have issues that needs to be resolved. Um, so, um, and, and I think you can, and when you travel, I think you see, uh, as you also mentioned, um, a certain level of de decentralizations where governors at the provincial level have a lot of authority. Uh, for example, when we try to work in a province or we have to do a program, uh, we do approach the line ministries to which the project is linked, for example, if it's an agriculture project or is it a 
you know, if you're doing health or whatever, so you have to talk to that relevant uh, line department. Uh, but I think it's also very wise to also to meet the provincial governor um, and to discuss with him your uh, broader project. And, and in some instances, he can tell you that, you know, we don't need this or change it to this to be implemented here, which you saw less in the days of the Republic. Basically, when you went to a province, you just went to your relevant uh, line department and you, you did what you did. Um, some, uh, I would say, um, I think also if you look at the, the, the bureaucracy, uh, pre-August 15, in the provinces, on one side, uh, they were, um, they would always be sort of in the shape and form that, you know, they're night ra there will be night raids against them or there will be attacks against them. So the, the shadow government structure was also very mobile. It could shift from a location to location. And it lived in the community, basically. It lived in villages or it lived in rural areas which are outside government control. And government would be more in the center of these provinces and districts. Um, so I hope my, this doesn't turn into a lecture. Uh, or um, 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 So uh, I think that sort of uh, taking that and putting it in a, in a formal state structure. Also, um, I, I would say over the last 14 months or 15 months has also slowed down and created a lot of ambiguities because as soon as there was a takeover, everybody inside the country and outside is trying to understand, have they changed or is it the same regime as in the 90s or they're new? Where is the constitution? What about human rights? Uh, how is the economy going to function? Are the banks going to be nationalized? So there's, I think, um, a huge amount of, um, uh, and of course, political settlement, inclusivity. So there's like a, a, a wide range of um, issues that um, are being demanded or being asked about. Um, I think some of the things that, uh, that you see is that, um, that you don't necessarily have the same, as I said, same kind of uh, uniform. So it's not like 34 provinces exactly the same way. Yes, you have a governor, you have a district governor. Some will be more cooperative, some will ask you more questions. So, you know, that kind of uh, personality-driven um, issues are always, of course, there. In some provinces, you'll find less restrictions of work. In some other provinces, you'll find more restrictions. But I think that's also not linked to not only to the nature of the new administration or the new administrators at the sub-national level, I think also tells you a bit about the culture of that province as well. For example, if you're working in Farah or in Zabul or in Badris, this, this these areas traditionally have also had their sort of outlook. Um, I think also if we, I mean, Mr. Zaiz here, like if you look at southern Ghazni versus, you know, northern Ghazni, there's, uh, there's also differences um, um, uh, in some of the issues and, and, and how people um, sort of go about uh, daily issues. So I think those kind of the historical nuances of these provinces also uh, um, has an impact on uh, on how, how, you know, these behaviors are. Um, uh, I think the, the term I would like to also say is, uh, so that, that merger, I would say, is still work in progress from a government waiting into the, the government uh, in, in power uh, that is running uh, the, the, what, what is referred to as the interim authority. Um, but um, in a similar way, if you look at the issue of social contract, between the population and the state, uh, I would say that there's more focus from the Taliban on looking at the mosque. And, and if you look at sort of, if those of uh, who here who have studied the, uh, the, um, the insurgency 
or you know um, attacks against the Republic or the NATO presence. One of a very key communal center is is the mosque. That's where people gather in the villages five times a day. That's where you get your sermons. Um, it's the mullah who leads the funeral procession or all the important festivities which are there. So I think the social contract very much looks at religious actors, mullahs in provinces, uh, and, um, and also in Kabul, for example, or you know everywhere else. But of course, urban and ruler has uh, has its nuances. How this, uh, whereas if you look at Republic, uh, Republic also saw religious scholars as very important. They had the National Ulema Council and Provincial. Uh, but I would say that process was very slow and it had, it was always sort of more of a symbolic body than some something with executive power. Um, um, and um, whereas uh, now um, the religious scholars doesn't mean that they're they are sort of the direct representative of the state at the ruler or the subnational level, uh, but those which are sort of selected by the district governor or by the provincial administration uh, have a have a sort of a, a key advisory role in um, in sort of influencing the decision making of the um, uh, of the uh, of these uh, subnational civil servants if you say or appointed officials so that is uh, very much there um, whereas the republic also relied a lot on tribal elders or community heads or sort of uh, heads of the community were uh, were sort of um, like if you look at all the lawyer jergas or the consultative lawyer jergas that happened in the years of the republic, it included religious actors, of course, of all ethnic groups and you know different ethnic um, religious uh, groups. But at the same time, the most important people in the room will be still uh, community elders and political actors and and jihadi leaders. Uh, they would be the ones uh, which will have a sort of a more of the leading of the process with uh, state bureaucrats, which will do all the focus groups and, you know, the consultative, uh, the, the technical aspect. So, um, uh, so that's, uh, I think, how does now this also, uh, if you look at the, the, the largest gathering we had in Kabul was the ulema gathering from across the country. But they say ulema gathering and community, the word in Pashto you say Makhawar uh, or uh, people who have some level of community representation. But that was the second sort of name mentioned. The first was the main concentration was on religious actors. So in the terms of social contract they are seen as important and I think that's where also the threat or the challenge of the state has usually come in Afghanistan uh, whenever there has been sort of the liberal versus I think we discussed this uh, I think in the first panel the, the first day we had. So I think they see that as an important legitimacy uh, tool at this point. Then if you, I'm sorry if it's getting a bit longer, but then if you look at uh, village heads uh, or if you look at the CDCs or the Community Development Councils or the District Councils or the former Provincial Councils which were elected uh, in the provinces, of course those structures uh, either uh, are dismantled or are not functioning in some cases or functioning more informally, especially the CDCs. But um, but in, some in many places I see new village heads have been appointed or community heads have been appointed. Some of the old ones have been um, 
for example, removed. Because usually a village head or a malik usually have a stamp. So if you need a new ID card or, you know, some NGO wants to distribute some humanitarian aid or, you know, any distribution of goods or sort of being the bridge between the state uh, and the village or the community, uh, they see that as an important link and they're already working on that. But in terms of laws, procedures, I think in many different areas you will find some ambiguities. Uh, I think now we see a bit of more, um, uh, I would say slowly, as I said, the dust is settling and you see like, okay, segregation or issues of, you know, more how uh, Hudud in the justice sector will be enforced. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the relationship between the formal and the informal justice or uh, how is it going to work? Um, so I think some of these things I would say are still in process. Um, sometimes some communities would uh, prefer uh, I think the, the role of informal justice has sort of also jumped. And I, when I say informal justice, I mean across ethnicities as well. Because some ethnic communities feel more comfortable resolving their disputes maybe internally, instead of like taking that and getting into a broader issue. Um, like land grabbing, I think yesterday this question also came up. So what about the issues of land grabbing, you know, different groups, different power brokers, uh, build townships and so on. Or, or we have the, you know, more uh, ethnically uh, angle issue of uh, land as well. Um, there is uh, now a commission which sort of looks at all these land titling issues. Um, and there is a lot of overlap. The other thing that I see very commonly... But, but, but I think we have to save something for our discussion. Yes, I will just say one thing. Yep. Just one last thing. I think uh, uh, you said, like, what did you see in your travels? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you see a lot. And this so, is very important because this is how things look in Afghanistan yeah. at the moment. Uh, so, the, um, so the last thing will be, and I think this is, a, I, I mean, uh, those, I mean, most of uh, here who study uh, you know, local politics or change. I think whenever you have a regime change or a new people in power, those who have lost disputes in the in the state courts are now challenging uh, or appealing again. So this has also overburdened the formal justice sector a lot, because everybody who has lost say, oh, because the, there was nepotism, there was bribery, and so on. So hence I was mistreated. So I want to reappeal my case. So that has also created a lot of challenges. Oh, mm. shut up now. Thank no, you. The last thing is very important, actually, because there was felt a lot of injustice last, uh, during the regime, Islamic regime as well. So that is now taken back. But let's move on. Uh, Shagul, because you then represent those who have been taken out of, of governance, both as a minority but also as a women. Can you say a bit about the situation for Afghan minorities under the Taliban governance structure? And to what extent you see the decision-making and respect for minorities might be influenced? Thank you so much. Uh, I, I think I also want to thank uh, the all organizer. About the questions, um, I want to mention one thing that the world of majority in Afghanistan is a political world. It is the reality because we didn't have a population census in many years. So when you don't have, you don't know, we have a, a 35 million population or we have 40 million population. In this case, how can we de define the majority? The, um, the majority is a political world, and it is the base root for the problem of Afghanistan throughout the history. It is one. Another, that you said the situation of minority, uh, 
uh, all the time there are war crime. You know that uh, in some places of Afghanistan, there are a lot of reports from forced displacement, forced migration. Uh, last week, at least, we had many reports from Daikundi province, from Ghazni province, from um, uh, from Balkhab and from many districts that uh, there are leaving Hazara or some other minority. Another, I want to say that um, Hindu and Sikh uh, were, uh, uh, most of them left Afghanistan uh, for, the, uh, uh, for the reason of massacre during last years or especially after Taliban take over. Uh, uh, there was a lot of uh, collective uh, attack on them and they left Afghanistan, I think, for those people who believe on justice, it is not a simple issue that a minority like Hindu or Sikh collectively leave a country. It is the destruction of the foundation of a human being in a society. It is not a simple uh, issue. Uh, and uh, beside of that, when we say the, uh, you know, uh, I am from Jaguri. Uh, and throughout the history, we didn't have experience of coming Kochi to, to Jaguri. This year, uh, after coming Taliban, we had a lot of Kochi in Jaguri during uh, that time that we should get our, pro uh, our culture uh, pr produces. So it is, it is not easy uh, to live in Afghanistan. You ask uh, a question about that. How can you see the ins uh, inside Afghanistan? I think it is, depends. If you are Pashtun, you can see what kind of, uh, you have another picture. If you are Hazara, you have another picture. If you are, are Tajik or Panjshiri, you have another picture from Afghanistan. If you are a woman, you have another picture from Afghanistan. So I think the uh, most important thing is that how can we have the whole picture from Afghanistan that we should have. Um, uh, I saw a film that it was the land of uh, um, Taliban's land. And um, uh, actually now, if we consider the situation, if we introduce Afghanistan as Taliban land, it, it is a separate thing. But if we introduce Afghanistan as a whole Afghanistan, it is another definition. I want to uh, focus uh, for, um, for the basis of uh, the Taliban government. What is the most important question that uh, we should ask from Taliban? What is the basis for the Taliban government? It is the law, it is constitution, it is Sharia, it is international recognition, or it is satisfaction of the, the people, or it is a good structure that can be accountable with the people. There is nothing, even Taliban that uh, have the flag of Islam in their hands, they, they couldn't uh, def uh, find a definition for, uh, from perspective of the Sharia for themselves. Even they couldn't use that. They misuse from Islam, they misuse from the flag of Islam. But when, uh, during the government, when they are in the position of the government, they, didn't, uh, they couldn't introduce themselves as a Sharia representative. So I want to have, uh, when you consider the structure of decision making, one, it can be uh, the basis of a government. When we consider the, um, the structures that can protect the uh, uh, citizen rights, or the base as a law or uh, the satisfaction of the people, uh, we consider in this situation, it is difficult to discuss about the minority rights or about the, the women rights or about the many issue that uh, belongs to um, citizen rights. I think uh, uh, it should not be so negative, but it is the reality of Afghanistan. I feel that uh, 
uh, a huge uh, amount of segregation we feel in Afghanistan, more than any time. This is the first time throughout the history of Afghanistan that educated uh, generation speak about the division of Afghanistan. I think it is not a good message. If Taliban continue in this case, I think this, this uh, voice will be loud and loud and they, uh, they don't want to, to accept the situation that they have. So uh, when there is no justice, when there is no law, you ask them, you said that um, um, uh, there are um, all ministry, uh, exception Human Rights Commission or Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Yes, they are all structure of the ministry. What is the function of this ministry? I, I want to say that when a soldier, uh, previous soldier or previous officer were killed in a mountain, no one see them, no one are evidence there. So their family, his family, what is the address for his family to go and say the, the, their complaint? I think there is no structure. At least there are structure. There are buildings of uh, ministry, but there is no structure. Uh, the uh, ministry or the uh, structure of the government means that there should be an address that people during the problem uh, can address that uh, that system or that ministry. Uh, there is a way in Ministry of Justice for Afghan people to say their problem with them. There is an address to hear the problem of Afghanistan. There is a way that when there are war crimes in Panjshir, when there are war crimes in Balkha, when there were um, uh, 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 forced displacement or forced migration, is there any address that people go and say, uh, what is our problem? I think uh, we should consider uh, uh, more deep because, uh, you know, beside of Hindu and Sikh, all time Hazara people, you know, the situation of Hazara people, as they called minority, I don't know they are minority or not. Uh, um, uh, they use half of their bread to send uh, their girls or, or boys to school. But there is no chance for them now to go to educational center because of the attacks, because of the problem, because of the, um, uh, there is no, a pro, uh, pro, there is no system to, pro, to protect them. So in that situation, I think uh, it is uh, needed to, to go through a difficult question regarding history of Afghanistan. Yes, Taliban, uh, I think uh, uh, Taliban is a full-scale impasse in Afghanistan, but it is no, not a new phenomen uh, phenomenon in Afghanistan. We have this problem uh, throughout the history when we, uh, when we studied the history of governance in Afghanistan, all the time there was a big tension between people, between citizens and governments. I think we lost all things. When we lose all things, so there is a chance, we, we see as a chance that we should discuss um, many difficult questions that we didn't discuss before. You know, uh, uh, nowadays there is a big discussion about the centralized and decentralized government in Afghanistan. I think this is the time that we should discuss. We can be to live together as Afghan people. It is the time that we should ask. I don't want to be negative, but this is the reality of Afghanistan. When we don't ask the difficult question, we will collapse and colla we will experience the collapse and collapse. Uh, consider the 50 years. In 50 years, how many collapse we experienced in Afghanistan? It is not enough. We have centuries uh, 
uh, experience from uh, failed governance. I think it is enough. This is this time that we should decide, and it is not that we should fight to each other. It is the time that we should start a dialogue. We can be together as a citizen of one country. We can define a good governance for our future. Is this structure that we followed uh, for many centuries, it is good? Isn't the time that we should discuss about our future? Yeah, I think, and it is the reality of Afghanistan. People of Afghanistan are hostage, as they were hostage in, throughout the history. The history. I think, um, uh, yes, there are some solutions that uh, Ms., uh, Mr. Karuchel said that we can stop by stop, start from, we feel that uh, decentralized uh, for, uh, in respect of, uh, from the view of uh, local governance, but uh, the decentralized government have their own definition. One um, uh, final point, you, say, you said about the inclusivity. What is the main of inclusivity of the government? I think they use from a Tajik, they, use, uh, they misuse from a Uzbek, and they misuse from Hazara as a symbol. There are one Hazara in all structure of the government Talibani. All the time, his job, unfortunately, is to, uh, to, um, uh, to reclaim the, uh, the slogan of Taliban. I saw in Twitter, they put four pictures. One Pashtun, one Tajik, one Hazara, one Uzbek. And this is, this is the reality of Afghanistan. This country belongs to everyone. This is only one Hazara, this is only one Uzbek, for example. This is only one Tajik. But, but they didn't show the whole picture of cabinet, the whole picture of structure, making decision structure, the whole picture of structure at all. Only they misuse from four and use these pictures as a symbol. I think it is not inclusivity. When you introduce uh, a point as a person, as a governor, it is not inclusivity. Inclusivity, by my interpretation, is that that we should consider the wishes of the people. Maybe all are Pashtun, maybe all are Hazara, maybe all are, are Tajiks, but what is the base for that appointment? What is the base for the government? What is the base for making decision? Thank you. But I think now you've touched upon some of the things that needs to be discussed. So that was an excellent cue to, to the further discussion. Andrew, um, can I ask you to present on how the international relation and sanction regime somehow influence on the Taliban governance? Where do you see a possibility that it can lead to change and possible recognition? Or are these internal issues actually at the moment more important for the Taliban than, than the, uh, the external pressure and giving, somehow giving in to that to... Uh, to receive a sanction. Where, where are all these dynamics working uh, at each other? Thank you, Arna. Um, and, and thank you again to all of the sponsors and, and uh, the hosts and for having me here with Afghanistan Week. Um, I think before we talk about how the Taliban perceive external pressures, and, and you referred to sanctions, but you also mentioned something in a panel earlier this week, uh, and, and you reminded the audience, especially here in Norway, uh, that the economic shock of what happened after the Taliban entered Kabul uh, is, is fairly unprecedented in modern history. Trying to imagine the loss of anywhere from 50 to 75% of your country's total GDP 
uh, wiping out all the resources that your state has uh, to function in, in any in any significant way at all. Um, regardless of the Taliban being who they are, the scope of the challenge is is beyond their control, and I think in particular given the Taliban's history, not as a technocratic government, but as a militant insurgency. Um, there is a lot about the economic situation in Afghanistan, uh, much of which most Afghans would say was a situation created by outsiders, by the international community. Um, often in Afghan media today, uh, much of which is controlled by or influenced by the Taliban, uh, that narrative gets very specific. Uh, they blame the United States and, and its NATO partners and its Western partners for the economic situation. The, uh, Masood can correct me, but I, I believe it's often just simply referred to as economic warfare. And so there's certainly an understanding among the Taliban and, and I think even among many Afghans who don't have much sympathy for the Taliban uh, that that the United States not only left, but that they left and then they imposed punishments. Um, and of course, if you talk to people in Washington and in Brussels, and I'm sure here in Oslo, often our conversations are about how we haven't punished the Taliban at all. And we've given the Taliban everything that we want. And I think we have to understand as a starting point that, that the Taliban and for many Afghans, they feel quite a lot of punishment. And, and they're living through something that's incredibly dire. Um, when, when you come to the Taliban as a movement, I think we often overestimate how important external pressures or external relations are. Um, this is a movement that not when they were founded in, in the 1990s, but certainly the reason and the motivation for reviving themselves as an insurgency after uh, the Western intervention in 2001, the reason they were able to rally people around themselves was the simplest message you can imagine. The foreigners have come, they have brought bad things and made many problems, and we are the only ones who can get them out. And, and, and it was that umbrella, the simplicity of that message that, uh, provided so much fuel for their insurgency, and of course the long list of Western mistakes. But now we have to look at this as a movement whose own founding mythology is based on this idea that when push comes to shove, if something bad is happening, A, it's probably because of the foreigners, and B, everything we do has to be about rejecting foreign influence. Uh, whether that's a diplomatic ultimatum or whether that's forms of economic pressure, uh, they've already withstood the most violent forms of pressure that the United States and Western militaries could marshal. Um, and, and so I think, as, as Masood pointed out in many different ways, uh, this is still a movement in transition, uh, trying to figure out what kind of state they want to become. As Shahrul says, in many ways, they, they're not even sure about the fundamental questions, the basis of their authority and how they're going to lay a foundation. Uh, but one thing that they are sure of is their attitude towards 
the outside world, and and that is a rejection of what they perceive of as interference. Um, they're quite happy to take help, uh, but but they do want to be approached as the victors of a war, um, and and they're still in many ways operating from the individual mentalities uh, of people who fought a 20-year war. And, and that means that they are suspicious above all and, and that they are quite used to looking around and trying to figure out where the threat is coming from and where the danger is coming from. And I think by default, uh, Western states, even with the best intentions, uh, wind up looking like the threat. Maybe I'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much. I think that was a very sober reminder. And, and for this research as well, there was one uh, Afghan researcher that reminded me that this is probably the first Afghan government since King Abdurrahman who have not been able to rely heavily on external funding to run their administration, either open or through shadow arrangements. So it's a kind of, taking the historical perspective, is quite unique uh, as well. An important part of that, and as what's also been discussing a bit now, is on, on the justice sector, law and order, justice system. So, Torun, this is your field of expertise. Can you say something about the, the changes to law and the justice system and how these have and are likely to affect women? Uh, thank you, Anna. Um, uh, I'll try. I'm um, very happy and slightly intimidated to be on a panel with such knowledgeable people, but um, I'll say a few words. Um, I think to start with the baseline of, of 2021, um, two things. Um, uh, I think in Afghan history, uh, there's been a long tension between statutory law and fiqh or Islamic jurisprudence. So statutory law being written codified law, uh, although of course in Afghanistan that written codified law has been based on Sharia using Islamic principles, uh, especially family and criminal law. And then fiqh as a kind of Islamic jurisprudence and the, the, the books uh, of um, talking about the methods of, of deriving legal principles from, from uh, Islamic sources like the Quran. So two very different ways of, of doing law, um, of legal practice. Um, and I think it's fair to say that in the last decade of the Republic, uh, there was more and more orientation towards using statutory law in the legal system. I mean, the laws were always there, but they were being more used. So in many ways, you could say, um, although, of course, there was massive problems in the legal system during the Republic, that laws, the courts became more predictable to a certain extent. It was clear what was legal and what was not more. Um, and then, of course, the second uh, baseline that during the Islamic Republic, um, rights of women were increasing, uh, of course on paper, but also perhaps above all in practice. Um, I've, I would think that in many, many provinces, perhaps most provinces, there was a, much, a breaking of taboo of women being able to go to outsiders, um, you know, such as, of course, the court system, but also the Human Rights Commission, the Ministry of Women's Affairs, um, in, in cases of abuse or violation of their rights. Uh, so I think... Uh, a kind of development that cannot be underestimated. Um, and now, uh, with uh, with um, the current uh, the Islamic Emirate, 
Uh, I think it's still open to question uh, whether the top leadership is committed to a written legal framework or not. And um, if they're interested in codifying law, uh, if they're not, uh, they're going to be the only country in the world uh, which, which has this kind of way of doing law, which is based on uh, judges' applications of knowledge of their of, of FIC rather than a written legal framework. Uh, Saudi was the only country that had this kind of system, but they're moving now towards a codified law. Um, so, so as Shagil said, it's it's still completely unclear what are what, what laws, if any, uh, can the government be hold accountable to? What rights, if any, have citizens? Um, and then on the protection issue. Um, uh, what we're seeing is, of course, a massive setback uh, for, for women's access to protection. Firstly, there's a um, incriminalization of women doing anything on their own, approaching authorities on their own, moving around on their own. This was always a tendency in, in, during the Republic as well, but it, it became less. Um, but now it's, it's, uh, it's very, very difficult for women to, to approach anyone if they have problems. Um, and then, of course, the shelters has largely been disbanded. Uh, shelters were incredibly important uh, in a country where women cannot really live independently um, if, they're, if they cannot live with their families. And now there is perhaps one or two um, functioning in Kabul, but with a lot of limitations in, in, in the provinces. If they exist at all, they're very, very much undercover, being harassed by the Taliban. Um, I think that some Taliban leaders in the provinces are realizing, like, what do we do with all these women um, that have nowhere to go? But I think the setting will be very different. There will be screenings and so on if they're established again. Um, and we have a lot of women in prison that nobody uh, seems to have any overview of why they're there and what on what grounds, um, because there is no legal framework uh, that you can that is applicable. Um, and I think there's a, the tendency to um, Taliban wanting to push kind of women's cases into the informal domain. And we can have uh, a discussion about that, I think, like in this current situation where the courts are so hostile to women, uh, is, is it actually meaningful to talk about going back to the uh, Islamic Republic period where women, you're trying to increase women's ability to go to courts? If the courts are just... Um, uh, you know, violating or not accepting any meaningful rights, you know, what's the point of going to the courts? Uh, and I think here, um, you know, as a researcher, we need more data. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's um, we don't really have much knowledge about how the courts are treating women. Uh, the only thing that seems very certain is they're no longer granting divorce. So a woman can only get divorced now if her husband consents. Whereas in the Islamic Republic, this was a very important development. Thousands of women were getting divorced based on being abused. Um, so what to do in this kind of situation from a women's rights perspective? You know, what is the meaningful strategy forward? Is it to avoid the legal system or is it to try to, to uh, push for some kind of rights minimum? Or uh, is it, um, I don't know. Um, and then just the hudud issue, because I think... That's come up in recent days. Uh, the Amir has allegedly said to judges that you need to be more uh, um, implement to dudes such as stoning, lashing, and, and so on, amputation. Um, lashing is, of course, happening on a fairly systematic scale in the courts around the country. 
but I don't think we've seen much of, of uh, amputations of stonings yet. Um, and I think here there's a myth that this was very widespread during the previous Taliban government. Uh, people that tried to document how many stonings there were uh, in the 90s, I think they only came up with a handful of documented cases. So it wasn't that import, uh, widespread then either, but uh, amputations were more. Um, but, and also the Islamic Republic did recognize uh, Hudud, but they didn't really implement it. So I think that's a big question now, what will happen with this um, encouragement from the Emir if, if we're now going to see more amputations and stonings. Um, yeah, time will, time will show. Thanks a lot too. And, and I think I'm um, just to verify because I was in Afghanistan much of that time and it was very seldom that it took place. And it usually was then them granting the relatives to undertake such actions as well. So let's hope that's not going into that. But can I ask one question quick to one? Because we also heard that the Taliban have consulted and are consulted by a lot of different Islamic states that might have more influence than, than the West on them. Do you see anyone where they might actually seek advice on the legal system? We know they have talked with Indonesians. We know Pakistan is putting pressure. But is the one school of, call it is, same for Shagul, more legislation that they could be more inclined to adapt? I think my impression is that at least the senior leadership is not at all interested in um, exchanges with Islamic scholars from, from other countries. Um, I think when the... Um, uh, organization of Islamic Cooperation was there um, a few months ago. The senior leadership refused to meet them. Uh, and um, I think this, I might be wrong, um, but this um, push for kind of um, interaction with Indonesians uh, haven't generated much interest from the Taliban. So I'm glad I can <coughs> have more updated information. The Organization of Islamic Conference established office in Kabul last week. And there have been high-level meetings with uh, scholarly delegation from Indonesia, including women, recently. So that's why I'm asking, because there seem to be things going on. But if someone wants to influence, or if they take, uh, take advice, that's the, I think, is where the questions remain. We are a bit over time already, but I found it extremely important to get all these kind of details and reflections. So first, the question, is there anyone within the panel who'd like to make a comment to some of the discussions here, add to elements to the discussion. If not, I think we'll just, I don't see anyone. If not, are there any in the audience who would like to raise questions? I see one question in the front, please. Just, uh, just as a comment to all your panel to understand Afghanistan. You know, the first uh, dear Turun, when you talk about justice, it is good to understand the real, real story of Afghanistan. The first, this Islamic law come after that our independence, independent king remove an Englishman come with own in Afghanistan history, never, never cut the hand of people. Afghanistan had a very, very democratic system who based in our culture. This is democracy that people talk together, never cut the hand of people. But 
in the same time is Islamic. The people have own uh, democratic uh, area. This is was justice who uh, destroyed by foreigner colonist people. You must understand the real, the real face of Afghanistan. My friend, I think all of Thank us you. have seen the real face of Afghanistan. Thank you. Leave, I think, is the next. Uh, we were, uh, you were a bit into it, but uh, the Taliban's influence and they gradually established shadow uh, governance in the district and such. And from what we experienced, the Norwegian Afghanistan Committee, we saw after every election that there was this very, very lengthy uh, process from the Republic side to establish the governors, the kind of the people that would be in charge in the districts. This took up to, it started with the, maybe a few months before the election about who should have the various positions. And then it lasted until like nine, 10, sometimes 12 months after. So I'm wondering whether this uh, had an implication on the weakening of the Republic's uh, governance system, that you had this all the time negotiations about who should be in power. Thank you. Thank you, Anna-Broxham, please. So the first one is for Masood. Um, well, as you know, there have been some, not, uh, not uh, across the board, but some election, uh, community-level elections in the last month for Vakila Gozar, Vakila Kucha, and some Moleks. And what we, what we are hearing from the outside is some anecdotal evidence of capture of these uh, elections by the Taliban. So for example, we were speaking to someone from a village in Kandahar who, was, who told us, we're going to go vote tomorrow for the one candidate. And so Kate and I asked, you mean for the candidate of your choice? And he said, no, no, there's only one candidate. Um, there were three, but the other two were encouraged by the local Taliban to withdraw. So we are seeing some anecdotal evidence of that. And I'm wondering if you've been watching that, what are you seeing, what, what, what are your thoughts on this? So that's um, one question that I have. Um, and then the other question that I have is, um, uh, is, is for you about, um, it, it's, uh, are you track because it's I think it's uh, the the starting point to say it's the only place that's like this with Sharia driven law and stuff is is the wrong starting point we have that and I think that one of the reasons why the other Islamic countries or predominantly Muslim countries with Sharia-based uh, constitutions and procedural laws aren't making headways is because uh, it would be hypocrisy for them to go and start this dialogue with the Taliban. That's just my, my personal take on it. Um, but either, either this is a question for either of you because I am interested in, in actually the OIC did establish an office. I'm, I am interested to see what patterns you guys are noticing in engagement. Um, those are my two questions. Thank you. And, and for the audience, the Vakile Gosar are, are more or less the administrative units within different cities where they have always traditionally, I think, elected their representatives. Uh, 
I'll just leave it open for, for the panel. If we can take a quick round and then you respond to, to the questions if you like, or if you have a final comment. Can we start with Torin on that side now? Uh, sure. Yes, absolutely, Farida. I mean, the, the role of foreigners uh, in um, supporting, Im uh, importing and um, promoting Islamist forces in Afghanistan is, is absolutely undisputed. Um, I think uh, with Roxana's question, uh, this is quite far out of my field, so uh, I, I don't know. Uh, when I was in Kabul in, in the summer, I was told that uh, the Kandahar leadership didn't want to meet with the OC delegation and many people that are much more knowledgeable about me um, said that uh, there's been this optimism that it's possible to influence the theology of Taliban from you know bringing these scholars from the outside that they're not really interested but I might be totally wrong and very happy to be proven I so. I want to just add because I remember in the summer they did make a statement and underline that this was theirs was the Taliban Sharia. They they did in, insert this Taliban into the discourse just to underscore their uh, that their uh, theology and their uh, perspective on jurisprudence was informed by their own uh, interpretation. I can just add that I'm, I'm I hope to have soon more information of what was the content of the discussions. Uh, at that side. I don't think there has been an official statement for the you know, Organization of Islamic Conference yet, so we'll, I think we have to wait for that. Yeah. Well, I, I look forward to hearing any information you get on that. Can I, can I jump in on yeah, that point, Arna? Um, I, I, think, I think that Toron actually has uh, the right, the correct read, especially in the longer view um, maybe connecting to my earlier point, I think we have to look at the engagement of other Muslim-majority governments around the world with Afghanistan, especially in the decade before last year. And we have to understand that this was uh, weaponized and politicized in many ways, either at the encouragement of the United States or, or at the explicit uh, pursuit of the Republic government um, going to Gulf nations and going to Indonesia and other OIC members and asking them, could you please put some activities and diplomatic engagement together to delegitimize the Taliban and, and their insurgency against us? Uh, the Taliban have been taking careful note. And, and I think a lot of their resistance Within some wings of the Taliban, uh, there are there are Taliban officials in Kabul and, and their diplomatic representation uh, who are going to be very willing to meet with the OIC, but that history is not going to be forgotten. Um, and, and, and Roxana from the audience, you know, took note of, of the language in a Taliban statement that I think underscores the way that they feel about their faith they feel uniquely and singularly placed in Afghan society. They feel an exclusive right by virtue of the war that they fought to interpret what law should be, uh, how the country should be governed, and, and even what uh, understandings of Islam are. And if you weren't with us in our war, why would you be allowed to join us in interpreting the law? And, and, and we have to understand 
uh, how connected that is to their history. Anyway. Oh, I think that's not, not anyway. I think that was a very major point. Thank you, Andrew. Shangun, any final comments and responses? Um, uh, I only want to comment on your question. Yes, there was a problem. I think um, we are not supposed to compare the Taliban with the Republican government, yes. Republican government have uh, had a lot of problems. At uh, the end of the, uh, in 20 or 2021, 20, we said uh, um, three, three persons government. It was only three persons who decide about all. Yes, there was parliament, there was provincial governance, there were pro provincial councils, but at the end of the day, three persons catch all the power. So uh, that is why I say that all the time we had problem. And this is why I think we should accept this reality that Taliban cannot represent the diversity of Afghanistan. Taliban cannot represent our culture. There is a big gap between the value Taliban believe and the value that people of Afghanistan believe. One side is the citizen that shouts for, for justice. One side is the government that the only language they have is torture and repression. So this is a big gap, and it is not a new, uh, his, uh, a new story in Afghanistan. It, is, uh, it has a long history. That is why um, when we consider, uh, we cannot forget that uh, 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 citizen rights and political system all the time have problems. It is not only in the Taliban regime. It, uh, when we consider the history of Afghanistan, uh, we had a lot of uh, a lot of history that um, a lot of um, history that we cannot forget. So that is why I think we we need to to start a dialogue. It doesn't mean uh, dialogue doesn't mean that uh, it should be like the uh, peace dialogue between Republican uh, government and and uh, Taliban. It should be it should start from. Uh, the society, and we should discuss about all things. This is a huge, uh, uh, huge um, uh, gap between the citizen as well. One part that they think the power is the only important thing in Afghanistan, so they think we should have power in many, in any cost. And some people think that no, we should have. This is the time that we should have a perspective. Um, uh, regarding the power, regarding the system, regarding the government, we should have a, uh, our, our perspective should be based on some values. We are part of the international, uh, the, uh, we are part of the world, and there are some values, some common values. We should have this, uh, this capacity to, to go with out, along with international community. Uh, that is why I, I think that all, um, throughout the history we had a lot of problem, and this is the time that we should start from. Even uh, when we think that it is not the good time for discussion, but we should start a discussion. Fully agree. Masoud, a very short final word. Um, final words. Um, there is no such thing as final word, but... Um, um, well, that's uh, point, the point of continuing the discussion. Yeah, so we, um, I think, yeah, uh, I think you asked the question about appetite for elections, and, and as, uh, I, I think i just like to reflect what Mr. Zai earlier said. I think this whole uh, who is majority, who is minority, I think that's something uh, in the absence of a uh, census 
uh, is something very important that I take away from this discussion today, that uh, we cannot treat people that you have three people, so you get less, and we are ten, we get more. And who decides who's... I think it's per perhaps it's a country of minorities. Or <laughs> um, uh, I think at least that's the feeling you, you get when you talk to um, different actors. I think in terms of elections, um, yes, on, um, on elections, I think it has sort of over, over the practice, especially the last presidential election, sort of completely weakened or the parliamentary elections. Um, I think numbers, how they change than what was on the ground. Um, uh, I think one reason that what you face in post-August 15 is how, uh, how do you um, how, how do you sort of argue of the, of the time of the Republic? Because any good thing you bring up, there's five other negative things that they can bring against it, like this was bad, this was bad, and this was how it happening. Yes, there was more, perhaps, uh, criticism, but that criticism further fragmented people as well. Instead of building a trust or a, or a better representation mechanism, I remember at least like for in the case of Ghazni, the uh, parliamentary election I think was delayed because of bad security. So, um, so, the, so you know there was all this kind of. I, I mean, I saw myself in Kabul, like in the center of the city, in the last presidential election. It was three in the afternoon when I went to the polling site. And in the entire day, only one box had been filled, and there were no Taliban checkpoints in that area. There was no direct intimidation. There was like 20 policemen guarding this mosque where the election was happening, and it was a middle-class uh, downtown, if you can call it. And, and honestly, that day, it made me worried, because Kabul is a city at that time of maybe five, six million people, and an entire vote count, I don't know how many were fake or real, but we had like two million votes more or less, and, and just in north of Kabul city, there's more than a million people living. Um, and, uh, and there were two, two representatives, one of, of Dr. Abdullah and one of Ashraf Ghani, two people uh, there standing. Um, but when you went to the same, uh, the same site during the parliamentary election, the queue went up to eight in the evening. And, the, and, uh, and as many as you are here, there were so many observers of each candidate. I think what was the difference for parliamentary election? It was more the patronage network. People want, you know, people invested. I remember there was a barber in the queue standing with me, and he was watching a gentleman who was standing in the corner. He says, you know, he has paid me to be here, so I cannot leave. I have to vote now uh, because, uh, you know, this is what I have to do. Um, and there was a very interesting. I mean, you know, when you're standing in a voting queue, you have people from different ethnic groups, from different social economic classes. And I think it's itself a very, um, which now is not the time to discuss this. So um, I agree with Khanem uh, Rezaei again that it's never too late. Uh, Afghanistan problems are not started on August 15, and nor it will end there. We have a turbulent history to deal with. As I said, the war trauma and, and at least 40 years of conflict. But one thing I also say is that we cannot solve conflict with conflict. Um, uh, and this has been tried again and again. And uh, uh, to this question of dialogue, how we deal with our past, and perhaps how then to see how to deal with the future, especially if uh, our educated class have left. And as uh, again, I refer back to uh, Mr. Zayi again that you know 
people, uh, educated class asking either for separation of the state or staying together on certain conditions. This is, these are serious questions. Uh, and I think there's no easy answers. And, um, and a great point by Andrew on the whole Islamic world. I think here two countries still have a bit of capital. Um, I think Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, they had some of these issues, especially in the issue of suicide bombing and how the cleric sort of spoke about them um, or delegitimizing the Taliban at that time. But two countries for me which are very interesting are Iran and Pakistan. Uh, although the Republic government tried very hard to bring the Pakistani ulama to denounce this, uh, they never, or you know, to do a conference on this issue, they never really gave in into that aspect. So, and I think uh, the Pakistani religious scholar, which was in Kabul, I think he was the only one who has visited, I think, Kandahar. Or at, apparently that's the news. I mean, we, there's no pictures that did he meet him or didn't meet him. Uh, and last word on governance. I sometimes hear a lot the word of the Iranian governance structures being sort of as a model that they may consider with a supreme leader, you know, a governing council of religious scholars and things of that. How much will it be replicated, not replicated? Uh, on Maliks and Guzar, uh, I think 60-70% of Kandahar has new uh, Wakili Guzar. But I think my information, maybe as I said, I haven't really looked deep into this, but in Kabul I saw a certain election on the Wakili Gozar issue. I don't know how many candidates were there, but I will definitely uh, try to check on this, like whether one selected candidate that you had to vote for, or whether it was, but what I heard, at least what I read in my notes, was that there were two to three candidates. Now, was that for each and every precinct, or for each street, or how did it work? Um, so, but uh, I, I think you yeah. continue that discussion, yes. because yes. now I'd like to give you a big applause. Yes. And thank you for, for, for this very well. We have been diving really into the governance systems. I think we need to do that. And I think we also need to listen to our African colleagues here saying that there are, the, the past is full of mistakes. How can we learn? How can we take this further? There is, you really clearly know what not to do, but then the question is what to do. Thank you, and see you very soon again in next meeting. <laughs>